to episode number 11 of the Witchology podcast. I am, as always, very excited to be here with you uh, this week um, for a week full of history, you know, witchy history, which uh, we love. It's very important. Um, And I've got a very long, (laughs) a very long book review for you today. So let's just get straight into it before, you know, I keep you too long. So this week's book review is The Bewitching by Jill Dawson. The Bewitching was published in July 2022 by Scepter Books. Um, And uh, yeah, let's just get into a synopsis. Alice Samuel might be old and sharp-tongued, but she's no fool. Visiting her new neighbours in her Fenland village, she suspects Squire Throckmorton's household is not as God-fearing as it seems, and she finds the children troubled. Yet, when one of the daughters accuses her of witchcraft, Alice has no inkling of how quickly matters will escalate and fails to grasp the danger that she's in. As evidence mounts against Alice, soon the entire village is swept up in the frenzied persecution of one of their own community. Exploring a neglected episode of English history to powerful effect, the bewitching vividly conveys the brutal tribalism that can erupt in a closed society and how victims can be made to believe their own wickedness. So... I'm going to have to try not to ramble on forever and ever with this review. Uh, there is just so much to the book and so much to talk about. So I'm not sure if I can split the review into likes and dislikes because it's just so much more complicated than that. Um, but let's start with the overall likes and then get into some themes that kind of really struck a chord with me. Okay, so likes. Um, I'm a huge fan of historical fiction. Um, I think it's fair to say that it makes up most of what I read, um, as well as Greek mythology retellings, you know, we love that. So, needless to say, uh, The Bewitching was exactly my cup of tea. Jill Dawson's writing is exactly uh, the kind that I enjoy reading, and she's so, like, deft with crafting her crafting of the environment and the time. Um, the picture it creates was, or created, was so vivid Um, I was kind of, you know, I completely lost myself in it. The story, although devastatingly familiar, and you'll know what I mean if if you come to, if you have read it or if you come to read it, um, it played out in a way that wasn't um, like hackneyed or cliched. So although we kind of know what happens, um, that was kind of okay. I kind of got the sense that um, the fact that you kind of know what, that the ending is inevitable was exactly the point of the story. And the author very skillfully keeps you like hanging on till the very end. Okay, so that's kind of like, I don't know, sums up my likes of the book. Um, And let's talk about a few of the themes. Um, Not all of them, because again, we'll be here all day. Maybe I should have just done a whole podcast episode on it. (laughs) Um, But okay, let's just kind of do this. These aren't dislikes. There are themes that made me very uncomfortable, uh, you know, but I think that's kind of the point. So the first one, one of the key themes of the story is misogyny, obviously, and the persecution of women. And you know, not just women, but generally anyone who didn't conform uh, to the expectations and societal standards of the time. Uh, you know, so like every witch story <laughs> uh, or like the story of the witch trials um, around the world. Uh, but what the story does well is kind of coax you or coax out of you that ancient fury, you know, that frustration and rage that we feel like deep within us, the rage um, with people who had all the money and the power and that kind of like deep shame and disappointment and heartbreak um, for, you know, with all the other women who kind of like, or people, you know, generally, who joined in um, out of fear and the kind of hopes of avoiding future accusation. Like there's a little part in the book where there is, yeah, one woman like outwardly admits that, you know, that she needs to um, join in on persecuting, persecuting Alice because otherwise they'll just turn and look at her, you know. Um, but yeah, that kind of deep rage that echoes through time and um, still so keenly stings us, you know, in our own age. Um, all themes are kind of like very familiar. So there was one particular and obvious conspiracy between the landlord and Lord Throckmorton um, that I won't kind of go into because I don't want to give any spoilers, but there is an undercurrent of something very deeply unsettling that runs like beneath the main narrative like something something that um very clearly only the men know um and even the reader kind of never finds out and you're kind of like yeah I don't know how to describe it but you'll know what I mean um when you read it so 
Alice is an elder lady in the village. Um, she's invited to the Throckmorton home because Mrs. Throckmorton is desperate for help with one of her daughters, uh, Jane. I think she's the youngest, I can't really remember. But anyway, she's been having a series of fits. Um, the maid, Martha, who is the main narrator of the story, kind of like there are two two or three chapters where Alice is the narrator, um, but Martha is the... Is it is Alice the narrator? I can't remember off the top of my head now. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, I read this last year. Um, she has tried lots of like natural remedies to support the, the daughter, um, but nothing seems to be working. Alice has been then kind of brought in because she's known for her effective natural remedies and is known in the village as the kind of like effective midwife. She's the um, the wise woman essentially, but although she, you know, people call on her to use her skills, they don't seem to like her very much because she's quite, you know, she's got a mouth in her, <laughs> which we can't blame her for, you know. Um, she just, she doesn't suffer fools gladly is how I would maybe describe it. <laughs> um, so while visiting, Jane has one of her fits and uh, accuses Alice of being a witch. Um, so as the story progresses, then all of the girls seem to come down with this sickness. Um, it's never really clear what's causing it. Um, they even go to a doctor, very traumatic event, um, taking Jane to the doctor, a male doctor who kind of scoffs at... Um, Mr. Throckmorton even thinking to ask a, a wise woman, you know, um, is very inappropriate with the with the girl. But yeah, there's one part as well where Mrs. Throckmorton discloses something to Martha um, about the son. Um, again, I won't say because of spoilers, but it's something that would have been like really deeply traumatic. And it's like, okay, well, what's going on in this house that is causing these girls to act out in this way? Because they couldn't find a kind of medical... It wasn't like epilepsy or anything. I mean, I don't even know if it would, wouldn't have even been known about at the time. But, you know, there was a very strong hint that it wasn't anything medical because it kind of really came on randomly. There was no pattern to these kind of fits and they kind of pulled themselves out of them again quite quickly. But yeah, very uh, disturbing uh, or unsettling is maybe what I'd say because it's not explicit in any way. Um, it's all very much subtext and kind of like... Um, I guess echoes that kind of feeling of like when you kind of know something and your intuition is telling you something um, but then all of the information that you're getting from other people is to um, I don't know like ignore it or um, I don't know that you're wrong and there's kind of like plants that doubt in yourself you know so uh, but yeah I'll leave that theme with you and you can kind of have a read and then see if you think I'm talking crap or if you agree <laughs> um, so the next one I think um, Again, I won't go on too long, so I'll just touch on this one because it really intrigued me. So I might be completely off base here and uh, Jill Dawson, the author, might be like knocking on my door after this saying, you know, what? Because <laughs> um, I haven't seen any other reviews touch on it. Um, but one of my uh, one of the themes that kind of jumped out to me was the anti-Catholicism um, in the UK that was kind of happening at this time um, and how closely that relates to accusations of witchcraft. So around this time, and okay, I do have to declare that I'm no expert, um, but Protestantism um, was being enforced as like uh, essentially law um, and you weren't allowed to practice Catholicism, you know, it, like, you know, priests were being persecuted. Um, you know, if you if you did practice Catholicism or were seen to outwardly be um, practicing Catholicism, then you would be in a lot of trouble um, in many different ways. So to Martha, an orphan, uh, was raised by a Catholic nun who taught her herbal healing. And throughout the story, Martha says like secret prayers to Mary, mother of God, um, as she was a Catholic and she's been like, you know, forced to um, be Protestant instead. Um, but she, and she kind of chastises herself for it. She kind of keeps telling herself like, oh no, I need to, like, don't do that. <laughs> um, but anyway, in different parts of the, of the book, we see Martha's practice as like with her herbal remedies and Alice's practices as well when she's kind of called on as the wise woman. Um, and what's interesting is that there's barely any difference <laughs> between the women's work and yet Martha's is acceptable but Alice's is witchcraft. Like there's even a point where Martha um, is reflecting on that which, as she's seen the kind of the thing play things play out with Alice and she's like, but hang on a minute, you know, why was it okay for, for me to learn this? What, what am I doing? Who am I? And then... Um, it kind of resulted in her kind of burying her head a little bit more in the sand um, and being more afraid to speak up for Alice. Um, but anyway, you know, that I, I can see we've, I've been going on for a long time now. It's very interesting. Um, it's a topic that needs its own entire series uh, of podcast episodes 
but it really does raise the question of like what is witchcraft really whose definition of witchcraft are we using you know where it was just kind of sprung as an accusation to persecute people who weren't you know conforming <laughs> essentially you know there's even you know there's a huge discourse on accusations of witchcraft as anti-semitism uh, which again you know deserves a significant amount of dedicated time and like real focus again probably a whole series um but yeah that i can't i just cannot get into right now but it's worth thinking about um i will leave it with you those thoughts with you um and recommend the book heavily you know i think you will get a lot out of it um but i will just say there is a content warning of sa um one scene in particular um but there's kind of a general subtext throughout so i will just give you that warning yeah but now now i've said that um i, I can still heavily recommend the book if you're okay with that content warning um and i would give it a four stars out of five so yes top job jill dawson thank you just before we get into the interview um i just wanted to let you know we talk about the full moon or it being the full moon um and i just wanted to let you know that it's because we recorded the interview on the full moon in december 2022 um so yeah in case you're you hear that and you're like hang on a minute <laughs> didn't we just have a new moon <laughs> um that is why so um yeah let's get into it enjoy My guest this week is Olive Morris. Olive has spent a decade in academia studying medieval magic and has an MPhil in medieval archaeology from Cambridge University and another MPhil from Bristol in medieval history and literature. Her work has always focused on early medieval magical women. Olive is also a fantasy writer and has just finished her first novel. Congratulations, by the way, very exciting. <laughs> Living in the woods in the southwest of England, surrounded by deer and owls, she enjoys every bit of magic that surrounds her. So welcome, Olive. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Very it's nice so exciting. So Olive is here today to talk to us about some witchy history, specifically Anglo-Saxon cunning women and their magical practice. And oh my goddess, I am excited. <laughs> <laughs> and my girls, like anytime I can talk about them, my women with balls, I absolutely crack them out and be like, let's talk about cunning women, please. Yes. <laughs> I'm so here for it. <laughs> um, okay, but let's start with a little bit more about you uh, and what got you into archaeology and then specifically into your specialism in Anglo-Saxon cunning women. So I always wanted to be an author and I thought that was an, not a very sensible uh, idea. So I wanted to write fantasy books and I thought, okay, now I'll go down the sensible path and I'll go into academia. I was like, what's the most like fantasy writing? Oh, medieval magic. I'll study that. And I've always liked history. Always been a history nerd at school. Uh, so I started off just doing a general archeology span degree, realized I love medieval stuff, always have. Uh, always being the person that goes to castles on my free time with my mum. Uh, and then decided to specialise in medieval um, stuff with Cambridge and then realised actually archaeology was a bit restrictive when it came to magic. So my MPhil at Bristol was in English literature and medieval history. So kind of removing the science element of it. Archaeology is quite science heavy. Um, and then was like COVID hit, the pandemic hit. And I was like, hang on a second academia is quite tricky to get into i might as well do the main dream and write a fancy book so <laughs> i've come full circle around but the academia has been very useful for fantasy writing as well so yeah so i bet because you can then i don't know apply so many more so much more historical context into, i think it lends itself well quite well doesn't it absolutely yeah i'm one of those people as soon as there's like a, a mobile phone in a book i'm like nope i don't want to read you anymore i want high fantasy medieval stuff so yeah it's lent itself perfectly but i really enjoyed the topics i i studied um, yeah no oh, amazing um so i mean would you describe yourself as a witch yeah, yeah i'm a yeah. bit of a lazy witch these days i have to admit mm. but yeah i've been interested in witchcraft since i was like 14 or 15 um mm. and yeah that that also lent itself to me focusing on magic being really interested in the past and how it kind of shaped magic today and I mean, I've been studying crystals a lot, but in the archaeological context, which is just incredible because I have many, uh, all ethically sourced, I'm very pro that. And the Anglo-Saxons kind of were too. So, I mean, it's all come full circle, but uh, 
yeah, I've always been very interested in witchcraft and both personally and academically. Yeah, amazing. So you can kind of see how that that pipeline, that witchcraft to yeah. historical <laughs> witches <Yeah>. pipeline, <laughs> it's a real uh, one. I mean, it's appropriate, isn't it? A full moon today that we're having this podcast. It yeah. is. Yeah, it won't go. It will go out um, uh, in a few weeks' time. But yeah, we are recording it, and it's it, and it's eleven eleven in the morning right now. Yeah, so everyone will know it's imbued with extra magic when they're exactly. listening. Exactly. So when you're listening to this, we're calling the you know calling forward all the blood of our and all the witches before us <laughs> absolutely I love that wonderful so that's, that's so uh, super interesting do you know what I was never really interested in history as I mean I've always been interested in um in witchcraft and anything magical anything spooky castles and things like that um mm. more on that kind of, kind of the gothic side of anything because I don't know history at school I went to a bit of a crappy school um just never explored any of that it, all it was was all the like perfunctory uh world war stuff oh, that was it, yeah. really. heavy. So if, if we could do this if i could look uh, I, I didn't even know this was an option i was like <laughs> old witches then this i would have been you yeah. know, all over well, that I, I think the syllabus now is like i think witchcraft and medicine are something is on the syllabus at some schools oh. i'm outraged that i did like the russian revolution i mean i i still liked it i still liked history then but like how did i not get that yeah <laughs> it's rude we are entitled to that. Why did we not get it? Yeah. But I think exactly. as well, your history teacher or your teachers in general, like I, I'm also a tutor. Uh, I think they can really shape what you like. And if you haven't got a most engaging teacher, that kind of ruins it forever for you, which is such a shame. Yeah, um, no, you're so right. It's, it's my really tutors, fair. my tutees are obsessed with magic, <laughs> Vikings, anglo saxons They love it. So I'm, Good. I'm Good. pushing Good. it forward. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> amazing but I mean for a lot of us um, modern witches uh, learning about where different witchcraft practices came from is so important I think it's something that um, is inherent to I, I've yet to meet a witch who doesn't you know doesn't want to learn about where it all came from you know and, and the historical practices um, yeah I don't know what, what what do you think absolutely like these the cunning women of Anglo-Saxon England were like not the originals because they're around in the kind of sixth and seventh century which is when christianity started to become very popular kind of started in the 500s and then uh, everybody was converting but these cunning women were around at the same time and were very pagan in their practices so they're all buried with lots of grave goods they practice magic they've got crystal balls which is kind of unusual for a christianity that was very anti-witchcraft even at the time there was lots of legal codes about you can't be a witch you get stoned or you get lots of <laughs> lots of awful things happen to you if you practice witchcraft so the fact that these guys were around and they were also buried within christian cemeteries they were kind of accepted within society shows that like witchcraft now can ha harmoniously live alongside any other religion uh lots of people have I remember my family are all Irish Catholics and great aunts and stuff would always read tea leaves and you're like that kind of juxtaposition but it's been like this since the sixth or seventh century so I think they can lend itself really well to understanding modern witchcraft and how we can adapt with society and you don't have to be solely like I can only think this one tiny thing and I can't accept anybody else's views or anybody else's religions witchcraft is a lot more flexible I think since it's been that way forever, we should all kind of remember that, which I think is quite an important message. Yeah, definitely. But I always do find that really interesting, though, and that that link between religion and witchcraft, because honestly, I think Catholicism is the most occult shit ever. Absolutely. <laughs> so much to it. And I think um, like looking at when I mean, this is obviously centuries after the women we're talking about, um, but in the like 15, 1600s, where protestantism is that not that's not right is that the right yeah. word <laughs> um started to obviously be, become the law essentially and um the demonization of catholicism in that way but uh, uh, those i don't know there's so many parallels aren't there i mean i'm not an expert whatsoever no, but no, you're right yeah there's uh, so many parallels between um witchcraft practices and those who were deemed as witches at the time mm -hmm. and how and actually how a lot of that was based in their catholicism yeah. um which is yeah really fascinating and that's exactly why christianity has so many pagan things is because they just adopted like we all know like christmas trees were originally pagan giving presents originally pagan like all of christmas originally pagan <laughs> yeah. that was the only way they could kind of stamp out the paganism was just meld it with 
the Christianity practices. So that's why it's so witchy. Like, what's the difference between a magic, a magic or a miracle? Like, is a miracle not magical? And that's just in kind of Christianity and Catholicism. Like, that's it. What's the difference between a prayer and a spell? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There's a there's two different forms of magic, whether it's natural magic or demonic magic. It's kind of later on, it becomes like light and dark magic or black magic versus white witches, that kind of thing. But originally, like kind of Anglo-Saxon time, natural magic was very much based on herbs and the, the world around you, whereas demonic magic was actively summoning demons to do your bidding. But like if you go into the woods and you're summoning a demon, but you're using a herbal kind of concoction to do that, are you not just using both kinds of magic or the other way around if you're if you're making a spell and it's a herbal remedy, are you not accidentally summoning demons to do that for like the, even back then, the comparison between what was witchcraft and what was kind of acceptable magic was so blurred, like nobody knew, yeah. nobody yeah. ever knows. <laughs> Still, we're all rooted in fear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and control, because obviously, like, it was very much a female power thing that if women, women were the ones that were witches from even in Anglo-Saxon, I know obviously like the burning of the witch trials and Salem kind of era is much later, but even in Anglo-Saxon England, all the witches we see are mostly women and the cunning women are all women, obviously, but it's the kind of power held within society. And then the men of Christian church thinking like, hang on a second, they've got too much power. Let's demonize them. So it's very much yeah. anti-women as well. Which Definitely. Cause it's, <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned um, just before about on the school curriculum, witchcraft and medicine being yeah. one item on the syllabus, you know, um, because, again, you can kind of see those parallels between when modern medicine started um, sort of taking off. That was mm -hmm. something it was kind of gate kept by men. It was like, well, no, you can't you can't um, practice this because um, a man knows, you know, and that like there yeah. might be. Um, people that would have that would normally go to their local cunning woman or wise woman um, for a herbal remedy, they then started being demonised. They well, don't go to them. You need to go to this man absolutely. who, <laughs> like money does, as well does, as like, like, doctor, health. you know. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And like even in the in the early early days of kind of magical remedies, magic and re and healing was completely intertwined. Even in classical like Rome and Greece, like. Uh, doctors and physicians quite often they would have been men as well but they would have sold charms as healing not as magic at all as an actual practical way of healing yourself so like a magical ring or crystals that would do specific things um like there's even in the 13th century in england in old english we have crossovers from the classical world so anglo-saxon england is very heavily influenced by the classical world so we even have medical texts there's a book called bold's leech book and it's all about herbal remedies and medicines and it's got crystals in it and it's got all these different literal magical things that we would now class as magical but they were fully like physician would you use that as this is gospel of this is how you cure somebody if somebody needs protection from a snake bite they're going to use agate like that's and that's what they use so i think it's really cool that that's always been a part of it so like crystal healing now literally has historical <laughs> grounds as early as like ancient Rome, which is really great. Yeah, so interesting. So you, interesting. If anybody's like, oh, crystals, what? You'd be like, uh, excuse me, Pliny, you know, Pliny? <laughs> Everyone knows Pliny. Yeah, he said it's fine. So <laughs> yeah. whack that out if you get mansplained too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, is that why I do history? So I can call out the mansplainers? Maybe. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> why not? Why else would you do it? <laughs> Yeah, that's the only reason to become an expert in anything <laughs> absolutely <laughs> okay so let's think a bit more or let's talk a bit more about the um specific practices of these um anglo-saxon cunning women what was like the go-to practice at that at that time for any witches or even if they didn't declare themselves as witches but so i will caveat it by being obviously in archaeology you can never be a hundred percent sure we're just making educated assumptions based on the grave goods and the things we see but uh we base it a lot on the graves of the Anglo-Saxon cunning women. 
And like I said before, they're always within a, a Christian cemetery, which means they're allowed within consecrated ground. So they were accepted within society, but they were quite often buried in deviant ways, which means kind of unusual. So they were either face down, which is called being buried prone, or some were stoned, which meant big stones were placed over their body. And it's kind of like a superstitious thing to usually people with a perceived power in life are kind of given a little bit of superstition around their burial. So they would be like, like with later vampire people would have <laughs> vampire people, you know, those people. Yeah, those vampire. people, those, that, that, we know them all. <laughs> <laughs> They'd have been buried face down and then we later get kind of variations of it. But to keep their kind of soul from wandering, uh, if they're stoned, it just meant that they were perceived to be quite powerful. But with the cunning women, because they're within the cemeteries, they're not, they're not shunned. This was like they were a high status kind of powerful magical person um and they had a lot of grave goods even within christian cemeteries the grave goods stopped around 730 ad ish but these are all the um fifth uh, sixth and seventh centuries so a little bit before that um but cunning women could continue after that we just can't see them but their grave goods included things like crystal balls uh beaver tooth amulets were quite popular obviously beavers were more common than they are now but still pretty rare to get a beaver tooth mm. um cowrie shells which were often associated with femininity and fertility uh loads of different amulets and, and stuff that was from the roman period like roman coins uh rings bits of a roman altar things that are really unusual so like non-functional items were buried with the cunning women um including things like possibly wearing kind of a bib of beads. So there's a woman in Bidford on Avon, which is like the original cunning woman. And she has like two meters worth of amber and kind of glass and elaborate beads, which probably were worn as like a big bib as like mm. a signifier of her status. And with the crystal balls specifically, they would have probably worn them on a belt. We find them often hung around the knees and associated with a spoon with a sieve in it, like little holes in the spoon, which could be to make herbal remedies, that kind of thing. So. We know from all of these different things that they probably were using herbal magic. Uh, and with things like crystal balls, like the Romans believed rock crystal was, would do lots of different things, could cure drunkenness for one, which would be great, uh, but also could stimulate a woman's milk flow. So that's why we think they might be associated with midwifery, a very early and magical example of midwifery. Um, but with having lots of kind of amber and some garnets and quartz they seem quite high status but we also get people buried also in deviant ways and there's these two examples of these walnut amulets that are also slung in like a silver sling which look exactly like a crystal ball but like a, a poor version so these could have been like poorer women of the community a, a much poorer society but still fulfilling the same role so it's really interesting when you delve more and more into the like they have finger rings and the finger rings are all spirals and are they related to the later witch marks that were designed to confuse evil spirits so you can get really into it but yeah they their primary function was within a society as kind of the folk healer of the society uh because there weren't usually many we, we wouldn't get a cemetery and there's seven cunning women in the cemetery there was one maybe two and in a couple of times we have double burials so we have a woman with a crystal ball and then interred a bit later a younger woman so i think one's like 45 and then the second burial is like all the cunning women are between like 20 and 45 from our age span uh and then the second one was younger so it was like maybe they got buried in the same grave because that was one cunning woman who passed the uh, like the headdress <laughs> i don't know if they had headdresses but i like to imagine yeah. <laughs> uh headdress to a younger cunning woman and then when she died she was also buried in the same plot mm, like uh, an apprentice and a yeah, yeah absolutely which i think is really cool as well um and it's all women, everyone. We can't sex all the skeletons, but all of the ones that can be sexed are female. And that's based with archaeology, gender and sex are very different. And sex is the biological um, form, but the gender is just based on the societal grave goods. So we have very rare examples of a male skeleton, but with female kit, which is great. Like as that's in itself as a whole kind of yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like an LGBTQ archaeology that I'd love to investigate more. But um, for the most part, they're all female identifying as much as we know. Obviously, we are aware that kind of LGBTQ presence in the archaeological record, but they're just the terms archaeologists use. Um, 
but yeah, really interesting. I, I love them. <laughs> That's why I call them my women with balls. <laughs> it's a great proxy to find out if there's a cunning woman, they probably have a crystal ball. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Oh, that's so interesting. So we've got amulets and crystal balls and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. What other, were there any other kind of things that, um, is it, is it mostly through the burial that you kind of find these things or are there other um, like aspects that you can kind of like that paint the whole picture, like anything found in buildings or, or like ruins of buildings or things like that? Or I've no well, idea we get about clearly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with the, with the cunning women specifically, we can only look at it through the burials because even though we do have some texts from that time like bold's leech book um we, that nothing mentions cunning women specifically so it is very much a title that has been ascribed by archaeologists today to these this type of group um but in terms of superstitions like we find dead cats buried under the corners of houses for protection or under doorways of, for protection little bottles of things buried in certain places in the house as like protection charms so those kind of things are very it just it shows that archaeology no the archaeology shows that magic was rife throughout anglo-saxon england we know that like i said already through like the crystal usage of physicians and things like that so we know magic was much more prominent than it is today uh but yeah sadly it's just the just the burials and even with those like with a burial record the person who died did not bury themselves with those items. So do you have cunning women that passed all of their goods onto an apprentice and therefore were buried kind of quote normally, but were actually a cunning woman in their society? We don't know. Were they buried with things that the relatives thought marked them as who they were? Like lots of people would be buried with their tools of their trade. Was that why they were buried that way? The burial record is very much kind of a socio identity of what people perceive that individual to be. So we can't 110% say, oh, well, this person was buried with a crystal ball. They use that crystal ball. What if the relatives are like, this is creepy. Oh, they've died. Just put it in there. I don't want it in the house. Unlikely, but you know what I mean? Like, we just have to be aware of that. But yeah, for the most part, it's the burial record is all we look at. Yeah. Oh, that's so fascinating. I never knew that. Um... Yeah, it's interesting as well, that kind of idea of um, there might have been there might be so many more who were kind of considered cunning women or whatever the term would have been at the time. Um, but we wouldn't know because they've passed their, their yeah. um, tools along, which is really interesting. It's also not just in England. Like the, I studied English ones just because it was I couldn't do all of them. And you need <laughs> but... a niche, don't you? You need to be able to refine it. Yeah. Otherwise you'll never get. Never, yeah, exactly. for masters. <laughs> yeah, literally. And uh because originally my my recent one was uh, it started as a PhD and that's what I changed in COVID. I was like, no, let me do another MPhil and let me go and write a book. No. But so I could have done maybe a bit broader, but no, I was saving myself the effort. But it is very widespread in Europe as well. So the crystal balls we get in England, they're mostly in Kent uh, and Kent had a very good continental trade. That's where the Anglo-Saxons kind of first came in uh, among other places. But there's lots of crystal balls we find on the continent. And there are these things called um, thread boxes, which a couple of our cunning women have, but they're also popular on the continent. And they are little boxes, almost like relic boxes in later kind of Christian society, but they have herbs, little bits of thread and cloth and uh, amuletic rather than practical because they're not of any actual use. Uh, so they could have been markers as well, but, and they're really common in the continent. So it seems like these cunning women and the practice was not just an insular thing. It was very much continental, possibly the crossing of ideas because crystal balls, some people believe they were mined in the UK and some people believe they were evidence of continental trade. So it could be that these cunning women are part of a much larger magical sphere and magical practice across all of the continent at that time which i think is really cool yeah really cool and i like the idea that they um i don't know it was sort of almost like a pilgrimage of of learning different things like either going like either way either from here onto the continent or across the continent to here and like how it's all bringing that kind of collective practice or i don't know you know carrying that yeah, on through. absolutely yeah the, the spreading of ideas was really important during this time um, and it makes sense that if things were coming towards us, well, they were equally going out as well, um, because the trade was prominent. So, yeah, it, yeah, all magical ideas spread across all of the continent. It's great. That's it. And it kind of highlights the shared practice 
um, that we all, especially thinking about a sort of modern witchcraft and where, because obviously there's always so many different arguments and debates and uh, things about different practices and your cultural heritage and what is what is a closed practice, what isn't a closed practice and that kind of thing. And those are all, all very important to observe. Um, but I like the idea of, as well as, well as that, obviously, and honouring our own cultural heritage um, and spiritual heritage, heritage um, and that kind of thing. But I like the idea of there also being this undercurrent of something really shared between us all um, and something that um, we all have roots in as far back as, as you say, the six, was it six, fifth, six, seventh, yeah, fifth, six. And even that, they've got like kind of Roman ideas, so even further back. So we yeah. go we go all the way back i mean even the cowrie shells that i mentioned that are in lots of female graves uh they date back to the upper paleolithic so like we're talking ancient stuff and they were associated with a grave so like they've been amuletic this entire time as soon as cognitive thought kind of was processed through humans um the idea of spirituality and religion was like a byproduct of our minds growing it's called a spandrel uh, so to help us understand the stuff we couldn't understand as our minds got bigger and got more gray matter and all that kind of stuff in it, we couldn't comprehend the universe. We couldn't comprehend how everything came about. So religion became like an evolutionary byproduct. So we're all kind of hardwired in some way to believe in something bigger than ourselves to help us understand the rest of the world. So that from a very early, early humans, there are evidence of like, graves with flowers all put around it and there's evidence of kind of spiritual behavior as as soon as we became homo sapiens basically which is so cool yeah and that that's still within all of us whether that be believing in religion whether that be believing in magic whether that even believe science is your is your kind of religion you know like we are hardwired to have some sort of spirituality within us and however we present that i think is is really interesting especially like you say with the shared the shared values that it's always been like that there's something that you can connect with everybody in yeah, that way definitely and it, it was really interesting that you even like sort of draw that comparison with um even if science is your religion although you know not a um, an organized religion but but you're right yeah. it's that it's the that way of because there are huge concepts about being human and being alive and that it one the biggest one probably death <laughs> um, and just yeah. never being able to understand or cope with what that means like and I don't think anyone um ever will kind mm. of I don't know there's just that thing about it's really difficult to comprehend that one minute someone's there and they are them and they're per and a person and then the next minute they they aren't <laughs> and you know what yeah. is it what is it that what is that essence that you can't actually put a pin on um you know scientifically or or anything really um so it's sort of like trying to understand those kinds of concepts um, and deal with that and and live through your life without constantly <laughs> yeah right <laughs> like paranoid every second being like wait what happens next yeah <laughs> like at least we know we're not alone and it's always been that way that we physically can't understand it in the greater scheme of life and that opens up a billion different doors of well how will who what where like which makes the scope for what you believe to be so broad which like you say making sure that we're very respectful and close practices versus things that you can kind of meld from but yeah, it just, it, it opens many, many doors to be like, what do you believe? You can believe basically anything as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Yes, yeah. <laughs> your, yeah. The world is your oyster for what you believe comes next because we've we've never known. No, so, exactly. We've will, thought, yeah. and we likely never will, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well. Like, where, are those, where, where are our cunning women now? Are they floating around somewhere? Are they watching over us? Are they, are they within us? Who knows? Yeah, exactly. Are they Whatever reincarnated you know. into, you know, people? Does the cycle continue, you know? Mm. Absolutely. Which is actually, which is some of the reasons why they were buried the way they were, because Anglo-Saxons believed that they would come, either they would come back or that the knowledge was kind of so sacred that too many people couldn't know about it. So but being buried face down or being stoned meant that that knowledge couldn't rise again because it's it's been passed on already. So they didn't want too many people knowing about this kind of sacred art. Yeah, that's interesting. Although if I, I don't understand the whole burying face down thing, I, mean, <laughs> I have to lower the tone now, but um, <laughs> I I would think that if there's something or like something physical within us that could escape, 
it would come out of our mouth or our butt. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. If you're buried face down, it could still come out. Yeah, they should have stoned the bums yeah. only, <laughs> but face down. That makes, I never even thought of that. I should have put that in my research. <laughs> what about the bum? <laughs> but yeah, distinction first. Oh, oh. <laughs> heralded as the academic of your time. Yeah. <laughs> catch the butt <laughs> yeah. oh no it's so interesting and that fascination with um with what happens after we die and uh the superstitions around i don't know death i think death and again i don't know anything about this but death rituals um as a thing i think they're so defining of every culture and there's, so, there's something so human like fundamentally human about like death rituals and the way that we bury our dead and and that kind of thing so absolutely i love that that's so true because every distinct culture and every distinct religion and even smaller on a smaller scale every distinct community like the ones that get stoned in the small villages that we see, maybe that was the practice of the time if they're a bit nervous of somebody or if they think they're a bit powerful mm. let's stone them and the the local vicinity of villages all did that whereas if you go across a few counties they all buried them prone or yeah you're right that it really shows shows you the humanity of the people even though it's about somebody who is no longer there the humanity's kind of gone they've died mm. but it demonstrates the humanity of the, the death burials and all that kind of stuff is is very signifying of beliefs mm. and that's why we heavily look at burials because it not only tells you perceived things about the person that was buried it also tells you about how they were buried by the people around them so it tells you so much about society back then and now yeah definitely definitely um so moving on uh, or say moving on moving back to uh your women your gals <laughs> um are there what parallels would you draw between um like knowing what you know about anglo-saxon cunning women and their practices um what parallels would you draw between that and modern witchcraft practices how do we see it how does it manifest itself in our in our everyday now i definitely think uh crystal use for sure especially crystal balls we don't know if they use them for scrying or if they use them for something else we know at the time fancy paperweight <laughs> yeah i mean maybe <laughs> aesthetic just jangling off their belt being like hey <laughs> look <Yeah>. at me <laughs> um but like we know from people like pliny or there was the poor man's treasury um that and balls leech book even that if you put things in water and drank it as a tonic which people still do now that you get crystal infused waters and they give you kind of remedies so crystal healing for sure is a part of it but also just the use of amulets we really like as a society whether you're magical or not but predominantly when you are kind of either superstitious or magical we use a lot of amulets <laughs> whether it be a sentimental necklace that's been handed down and we wear for luck or it's your lucky pants if you're going for like an interview like the use of amulets and items that have significance to us that if we think if we use this something good will happen or if we use this something bad won't happen is really like at the core of many people's practices now um and with with our cunning women we get a lot of burials with amulets but without the rest of the kind of anglo-saxon cunning women kit so we have an occasional amulet well actually we have a lot of amulets in just normal i quote again normal graves which was superstition rather than being a cunning woman so just the, the presence of an amulet doesn't make a cunning woman it needs to be a, a considerable kit to show that that was the kind of the tools of their trade but it shows that women of the time whether it be because they were more at risk in society or whether they were just prone to being more superstitious we don't know but female graves have a lot of amulets uh, across the whole of the country and probably across the continent as well even when they're not cunning women um and i think that's really prominent now with general witchcraft like we have our crystal amulets we have our found coins or pieces of sea glass or special fossils that we found because we find fossils in cunning women graves as well it see hagstones exact all of these kind of things are really important to modern witches and they were also really important to the anglo-saxon cunning women and also just to to society and women really uh back in the day so yeah i think that's so many parallels yeah <laughs> definitely the same thing it's the same yeah, it's just the same. <laughs> so we just still do the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's it's interesting, and I and I really like that. 
the the kind of everyday magic or the witchcraft actually is woven into the fabric of our society like on the whole like you're saying about how actually the use of amulets is something pretty much universal um mm -hmm. well can I say universal and global like an academic term I can't remember who did it I'm a bad academic uh but it's called pebble mania we're like we find a nice stone we want to keep it like must keep this smooth pebble there are smooth pebbles in cunning women graves there are smooth pebbles in early human kind of ritualistic sites we've always done it sometimes the need for keeping that nice stick it's literally in our dna so keep that nice stick and bring it home yeah. and keep that pebble <laughs> That's so interesting. Like, uh, I don't know, it just makes me think, you know, we're all just little animals, really. Yeah, animals. Where we make our little nests and we bring our special shiny rocks and our special sticks in <laughs> to make it all nice. And like, I've got all my pretty rocks in this room decorating my space. Regularly tell my husband when I'm collecting another stick from the woods being like, I have to have it. It's literally been this way since the early, early dawn of time. Oh, I must keep it. Yeah. If you, if you go against me, if you don't let me, then you are going against history. <laughs> <laughs> I love he always lets me keep the stick. He doesn't even, he doesn't question it anymore. <laughs> he just brings them home for me. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was thinking about now downstairs in my coat pocket, there are conkers and acorns that I haven't actually done anything with. So, yeah. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> the other day I went to the opticians, I was getting an eye test, and I passed over my glasses to get them tightened. And then they went away and I looked on the table and there was an acorn. And I was like, I don't even know where that fell out of. Like maybe my hat, maybe my sleeve. I don't know, but it just like appeared. And I was like, yep, appropriate. So just put it back in my pocket. <laughs> but what if it wasn't, what if it was the optician's acorn and you just- I imagine. <gasps> I just stole someone's, <laughs> I just stole an acorn. <laughs> that person, I'll go back. I didn't lose an acorn a couple weeks ago because I think I took it. I'm so sorry. No, like, that was my lucky acorn. How dare you? They won't even be there anymore. They'll be gone. They'll be like, oh no, something terrible happened. It won't even be in my pocket anymore. It's 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 vanished itself. Yeah. It's like you deserve me. <laughs> oh, all a mystery. <laughs> well, this has been. I think we could talk about this forever. We'll probably have to do another episode where we can <laughs> find me a bit more. Yeah. Um, so, but so we don't go end up being, I don't know, reciting war and peace on this. <laughs> Danger is real. Um, I have one final question from question for you that is completely unrelated to anything. <laughs> but if there was going to be a movie made about your life, let's say you become a best-selling or because you will a best-selling author of fantasy novels and you're like do you know what let's make a movie because it's so interesting about all the you know your journey through academia and into um novel writing who would play you in that movie oh God, i knew you were gonna ask this question from the beginning <laughs> of the question and my brain's been like oh my god oh my god who is <laughs> it because it's hard isn't it <laughs> it's like when somebody asks you what's your favorite song even though my husband is a musician, I know a lot of music. As soon as somebody asks me that, I'm like, I've never heard music in my life. I don't know what you mean. I can't think of a single thing. <laughs> the music, I don't know her. Sorry. <laughs> Actress? I don't know what they are. No. <laughs> um, who would I want to play me? My husband always says that I, sometimes I sound like a bit like Kira Knightley when I'm speaking. So yeah. I think he would like it if I picked Kira Knightley. I can feel that you've got uh, a similar sort of face shape as well, that kind of strong. That is yeah. an incredibly high compliment. I thank you very much. Let's just leave it there. That's yeah. it. <laughs> Kira Knightley would do, would do a good job. The only thing is she's a little bit, she can be a bit annoying and you're not annoying. So. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I also really like Kerry Mulligan. She's great. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. She'd play a good you, I think actually. That's oh, thank help. you. Yeah. That's yeah. Really, I'm just getting complimented left, right and centre. <laughs> pretty and really great yeah. uh, <laughs> well, maybe if I'm older I think maybe Helena Bonham Carter would I used mm. to really look like her when I was younger when she was young mm. I used to like weirdly look like her now I've diverged and gone a different path but maybe when I'm a bit older I think Helena Bonham Carter would be cool yeah yeah and that's three very good shouts I think that each of them could play you at a different stage maybe I love that yeah yeah Mulligan <laughs> now as a kind of younger and then yeah. Kira Knightley a little bit older and then Helen Bonham, Helena Bonham Carter when you're older okay sorted I love that who can we go to who can produce this biopic of me like, well we need to hurry up and get on it because <laughs> I was gonna steal that idea <laughs> <laughs> to get more books out yeah <laughs> 
Oh, thank you. Get the first one out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Are there, is there any news on that? Well, I'm going to start, I think I'm going to start querying soon mm. to try and get it published because uh, I can't decide whether I want to go down traditional publishing or self-publishing. So I think I might try traditional, see how it goes. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a chunk, the book, uh, but I love it and uh, it's my baby. So hopefully we'll see what happens. But yeah watch this space thing yeah it will be as well because I've been so invested ever since you did NaNoWriMo last year yeah. <laughs> and all your daily updates are like this is how many words I'm so invested so <laughs> here we are a year later and I'm still I'm ready for it yeah well it's ready to go now so it's a year but it's all refined now <laughs> lots of magic in it lots of crystals it's very much if you like this podcast hey come and read my book <laughs> plug 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 <laughs> publicity for me and it's not even published <laughs> all right so it's been, <laughs> it's been such a pleasure to speak with you today so thank you so much for taking this time uh, to spend with us with our witchology lot <laughs> I've been a fan for ages and I've been a fan of yours for ages your journals make me die because oh. they're so pretty. <laughs> uh, but it's been an absolute blast I could talk about this all day with you it's so much fun so thank you so much for having me thank you so thank you very much for tuning in again today. It has been an absolute pleasure. If you like this episode, you can enjoy it ad-free by becoming a Witchology subscriber. Not only do you get access to this podcast and lots of bonus episodes, you will also get a print subscription to our magazine as well as cauldrons full of additional content on our exclusive members area on the website. Head to www.witchologymagazine.com forward slash subscriptions to find out more. Until next time. Thank you.